If you've got your Bible now, I invite you to go to John chapter 7 as we go back to this conversation that Jesus is having with both religious people and with an onlooking crowd at one of the most populated times in the yearly calendar of Jerusalem. Jesus, in verse 14 of John chapter 7, heads up what is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the third feast of three that Israel had to send up all of their males to appear before God at the temple. This was the favorite feast of the Israelites. This was a real party, so to speak, and that's why my title says what it does when Jesus shows up for his own party and is rejected. Because this was actually a party for him, about him, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I wanted you to hear the words of Paul in Colossians when he writes this letter, because if you listened as Jeff was reading, that's a chapter full of admonitions, what we call imperatives, like do this, don't do this. But it's all motivated by something. If you notice in that passage, it said, put on love. Now that word or that expression, put on, actually means like you would put on a coat. You, you, you actually have to go through the exercise of putting it on. And from there, you clothe yourself in the love of God and you start to become like Christ. And I want you to hang on to that because today we're here, it's the first Sunday of June, and so we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And if I said to you that the title of my sermon in John chapter 7, specifically, really it's all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 into chapter 9, but in verses 14 to 24 of this chapter, by way of preparation for the table of the Lord, I would submit to you that Jesus comes to a celebration that was instituted by God the Father for this group of people, this nation, to celebrate and to remember and to look ahead and to anticipate the Messiah. And here He comes. And the people that are gathered are like, but we didn't want you. And so Calvary Baptist friends and guests that are here as this nation gathered to celebrate a feast that looked back and remembered how God had provided for them and protected them and guided them, and they looked forward to the Messiah, here we are at the table of the Lord, and if Jesus walked in here, would we be excited? Really excited? Would it thrill us to have Jesus walk in and fall under His gaze. You see, in the midst of this feast, this seven-day feast that was happening, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he proceeds to teach, and his teaching took the form of a paradox. Because in verse 14 of chapter 7, he asserts authority. And yet, in verse 16 and 17, subordination. He submits. He says, first, I come and I teach to you. And, and, and the Jewish people were amazed by this. But then in verse 16, he says, but my teaching's not mine. And in verse 17, and I give glory to somebody else. And then he makes this massive promise that if you do the will of God, you will know God. You will know God's will. And then today, we're going to look in verses 18 to 19. He gives the nation a practical test. And then in 21 to 24, he illustrates his point. And last week, I submitted to you that Jesus offers three principles to both the religious establishment 
and to the crowd. So when you're reading the book of John, whenever you read the Jews, I want you to always think of religious leadership. That's what John the Apostle means. Well, whenever you read the Jews did this or the Jews asked in that, he means priests and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Whenever he talks about the crowd, he's talking about the common man, the common woman, the person that were gathered. They were the everyday blue and white collar people, the down in the dumps people, the up, uh, up in life people. It was just the crowd. They were struggling, everyday people to do life. But in this passage, he gives us three ways to be Christ-like. Last week, we learned that to be Christ-like, you've got to obey God. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. If you want to be like Christ, obey God. Because Christ obeyed God. And then he gives you two other principles that we're going to look up today as we come to the table of the Lord. If you want to be like Christ, then you've got to want God's glory. Do you want God to be glorified? Do you want God to get the credit for life? Do you want people, including yourself, to sing His praises? Do you have a desire? Listen, purely apart from the joy that you might personally get if every pew here was completely packed and there was people out in that foyer and people out on that front yard and we had to open all the doors and the windows so people could do it. Outside of the fact that that would be thrilling, would it just thrill your soul because it would mean that many people are glorifying God and God's getting glory? Or sometimes do we want big churches because that'd be cool. I've traveled extensively, and next week I'm heading down to Dallas. And last year, or a little over a year ago, I went to Dallas and Houston. And, and this is not to be down on those in Texas. God has blessed them, but it is easy when you're in that state and you see how God has blessed them, and you visit these buildings that are just massive, and they hold thousands upon thousands of people. And often your jaw just hangs open and you look at the beauty and the splendor of these massive buildings with these football stadium type parking lots and these massive crosses and steeples and you walk in and, and in the foyers, I told you I went to one church in Dallas and in the foyer they have a food court with 24 restaurants in their food court in the foyer. <laughs> And I got some people thinking that they know which church I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and it's easy to walk in there and go, wow. And yet I have to confess, and this is not to be down on that blessing. When I was in Nizhny Novgorod and I drove about a couple of hours outside that city in Russia and went to this very, very dirty, polluted town called Dzhinsk, which is according to National Geographic is the fifth most polluted city in the world. 27 prisons surround that city. And I gathered in a little tiny church, half the size of this one, all made of brick, ate a meager, meager soup called borscht, which I actually quite enjoyed, with 30-odd people around the table, and only me and my translator had never been in prison. Everybody else had been in prison, found Jesus in prison. Over half of them there were studying to get baptized. 
And we stood up and we sang the doxology, me in English and them in Russian. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I have to tell you, the tears rolled down my cheek that day in a way that God was glorified, in a way that transcended any of the beauty of any building I've ever seen. What do we truly want? And your reason that this is here, because if you want to be like Christ, you've got to want God's glory. And then finally, if you want to be like Christ, you've got to read God's Word. If you came this morning and said, man, Steve, I thought you were going to give me something really cool and original. No, it's not. You've got to read God's Word. That's why today we went out of our way to give you large portions of it. And the reason for these is that Jesus' authority and position are not only being challenged and questioned by the religious establishment and by the crowd, the culture, he's actually going to end up being rejected. His pedigree, his messiahship will be questioned and then rejected. And following that, he's going to make them a promise and an invitation, and that will be questioned and then rejected. And so the Apostle John carefully crafts this gospel that bears his name with these key conversations with key individuals and groups, and he picks seven particular signs that were specially chosen for you and I to to get get note of, and then seven specially chosen I am statements of Jesus. And that reason he does these seven signs and these seven I am's is because by the end of the gospel, John says, here's the conclusion I want you to come to, and repetition aids learning, right? John chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, now you've heard me say this many weeks But don't understand, the gospel is laid out with seven signs and seven I am statements. And John says, I want you to come to a different conclusion than most of the people that I've written about came to. Including our passage. I want you to read this and know that these were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not doubt Him and question Him. Believe it, that He's not only the Christ, He's the Son of God. And if you will believe, you'll have life in His name. Oh my goodness, I can't wait in the coming weeks to unpack what it means to have life. Because I believe that so many of us exert so much energy trying to live the good life only to discover at the end of life like Solomon, oh my goodness, I wasted my life pursuing what was never going to give me what I was looking for. Let me describe it to you this way. When you are looking for something in life that's not going to pay off, you will never be at rest and you'll never be at peace. Let me illustrate it for you. I know it's not going to happen anytime soon here, but eventually, Lord willing, the temperatures will rise and we will get into the water and we'll swim. I was in Charlottetown on Friday and on Friday, not to discourage you, but it was 30 degrees Celsius in Charlottetown on Friday. Now, before you get covetous, on Saturday, it was 5 degrees with 100-kilometer winds and sideways rain. So, you know, God doled it back to them as well, all right? But on Friday, the beaches were full. The swimming pools were opened. And uh, you heard different people. And if you've ever been swimming, and, and one of the things about swimming, you can get beach balls and those floaty devices. And from the kid to the adult in you, if you've been swimming, what is one of the things you want to do with those floaty devices when you're swimming? Don't you ever want to just put them underwater? 
you want to force them underwater and kind of sit down. I see smiling faces of more adults than children because you've done this and you like doing this. Don't you? you like to shove it under the water and kind of put it between your legs. And you put, but you know the whole time that that's done, what's happening? Does the beach ball ever not resist you? No. No matter what, no matter how comfortable you get, no matter how much you enjoy the fact that it's underneath, you know that if you position yourself wrong, if you relax the muscles in your legs, what happens? Beach ball, foomp, right up out of the water, probably into your face. But if you've ever watched floaty devices in a pool, what do you see? They're floating on the pool where they were meant to be, at peace, no resistance, just floating. And you see, brothers and sisters and friends, when you and I try to find happiness by getting life on our terms, by doing it in our way, what we think is pleasurable and desirable for us, and we think this is what will give me satisfaction, and it's not God's desires, it's always like you pushing your life underneath the water, trying to hold it down, and you'll never be at peace. You'll never be at rest. Because the only time you're going to be at peace, the only time you'll ever be at rest, is when you're finally where God intended you to be, on top of where he wants you to be. And yet so many of us go through life trying to push the life that is our beach ball underneath the water because we think that will make us happy. And next thing you know, something happens in the position of life and everything goes to pot. And then what happens? And that's why Jesus says what he does And so now Jesus is going to explain this. Look at verse 16 and 17 of John chapter 7. As we come to the table of the Lord, Jesus says to the the Jews now, not the crowd yet, to the Jews. He's speaking to scribes and Pharisees. He's speaking to high priests and priests. He's looking at them and says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's an authoritative statement. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's a submissive statement. See, the Jews, these priests and scribes and Sadducees, couldn't attack Jesus' message, so they attacked the man. If you notice back in verse 15, they say, who is, who is this guy? Who is he that's speaking and teaching like this? And so they attacked his qualifications to teach and to proclaim. It's a classic strategy. You see it employed today in politics and everything else. Ontario is going to vote this week, and you see this in the midterm elections in the United States. If you can't attack the message, attack the messenger. And so that's what the Jews do. That's what the religious establishment do. They fight it. They want to destroy the messenger. But Jesus immediately points out to the Jews what he said days earlier to his own stepbrothers. God's will, God's message, God's mission is all I ever said and all I will ever proclaim. Thus, obey God and you'll know God. Obey what you know from God's word and God will show you more of himself from God's word. That's both a promise and a principle. The old Anglican minister J.C. Robb put it like this. The principle here laid down is one of immense importance. We are taught that clear knowledge depends greatly on honest obedience. And that distinct views of divine truth cannot be expected unless we try to practice such things as we know. Living up to our light, we shall have more light. Striving to do the few things we know, we shall find the eyes of our understanding enlightened and shall know more. Did the Jews profess to feel perplexed and not know whether our Lord was sent from God? Because that's their claim. They claim to be experts of the law and then said, but we don't know who you are. 
And so let us honestly do God's will and seek knowledge in the path of sincere obedience. But now for this morning, I want you to notice, to be like Christ, you've got to want God's glory. Let's go to verse 18. Look at what Jesus says. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is no falsehood. And so Jesus is exposing the way of the false Messiah from himself, the real one. He's exposing the false professing Christ follower to the real one. This is Jesus' way of telling religion in John what Jesus told religion in Luke 15. Do you remember that? Then remember that prodigal son? We call it the prodigal son. Now, get this. It's actually prodigal means generous. So just so you know, it's not, not really named well to say prodigal son. It should be prodigal God. Because the person who was generous in that passage in Luke 15 was the father. And we often focus on that son, the deadbeat son who said, give me my inheritance, and he runs out of the country, and he spends it all, and he ends up in a pig pen. But do you realize this is a story about two sons, two ways to try and control the father. One son says, I want everything now. It's mine. I have rights to it, and I want to spend it any way I want. But we discover later that the older son gets ticked when his baby brother comes back and gets forgiven. Why? Because he says in his heart, I've obeyed you from the beginning. Now you owe me. And so you have a young son trying to control the father with demands. You have an older son that's actually trying to control the father through obedience. And he's saying, now that I've obeyed you, you owe me. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. But either one, either son wanted their own glory. They didn't want to glorify the father. They wanted their own glory. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus is in effect saying, look, you can know I am true and real and who I claim to be because all, all I ever want is God to be glorified. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 and 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, and here's that statement, so that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Jesus is saying, look, it's impossible for me to lie because all I ever want is God's glory. Therefore, you know I'm the Messiah. Jesus is saying what he does here must have really ticked off his primary audience. Because he's talking to rabbinically trained religious leaders of the day, and he's calling out their desire to teach in the strength, jockeying for position and power. He's, he's condemning the celebrity preacher who's always been with us. These were men seeking their own fame, their own following, and they feared the people, not God's glory. Jesus looks at the very people who call his authority in question and says, you know I am the Messiah because all I want is for God to be glorified. You claim to be the leaders and all you want is your own glory. You don't think that the religious leaders were not aware that there's a crowd watching and listening? Jesus is condemning them. He's calling them out and he's doing so with a smile. He, he's, he's laying out this and they see this. And you know that this was what they felt because if you look down at verse 30 of chapter 7, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because they feared the people. See, if these men were seeking God's glory, they would not have feared people. They would have feared God. Jesus says, you know I'm the Messiah because I want God's glory, whatever that looks like. Down in verse 44, 
Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Church, understand in the 21st century of mass media and prosperity gospel, the goal of the false prophet or preacher is not to feed the flock or protect it, not to love people or comfort them. It's not to sacrifice for them or put them and their needs ahead of their own. The false prophet or the false preacher fleeces the church. He adds pressure to people, seeks to control others for their own benefit, but not Jesus. If Jesus were simply trying to persuade others to his views, he would have sought whatever means seemed most effective. If he had the power to heal and it was all about him, he'd have just given people what they wanted. A few more miracles, a few more of this, I'd have them eaten out of the palm of my hand. Remember back in chapter 4, after he performed that miracle, they wanted to forcefully make him king, but he wouldn't let them. Because he wasn't a false prophet. In fact, he utterly rejected such pragmatism. Remember what his brother said back in verses 3 to 8? He said, I'm not here on my agenda. I'm here on the Father's agenda. But if you remember Philippians chapter 2, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he left the throne room of heaven. And he was crucified on a tree. What about Romans 5? But God commended his love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, God, Christ, died for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, that he who had no sin bore our iniquities on the cross. Verses in Hebrews and Revelation that Jesus tell us that Jesus came to die. He came to heal and forgive, to love and tell us the truth about ourselves, but to offer himself in our place. I love the way John MacArthur sums up this. He said, Jesus, however, never sought his own glory. Since he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was gentle and humble in heart. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, if I can be culturally relevant, Jesus didn't ask people to buy him a jet. As recently, a pastor said, God told me to tell you that you need to give money so I can have a jet. $54 million and claims to be a preacher. Why is it that all the people that tell you to give the most seem to have the most themselves? Folks, we need to see this. But let us remember the example of Christ who just before he did that stood up, then knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. As we come to the table of the Lord, I want you to remember the example of the context by which this celebration was given to us. Before he ever said, and he took the bread and blessed it, and he took the cup and blessed it, he got up, took off his outer garment, put an apron around himself, and went around the room and washed the feet of all of his disciples. Can you imagine what that would have been like when the creator of the universe washes the dust and dirt from your feet? If you actually want to see the one who truly understood the gravity of it, just read the interplay with Peter. This is our example. He would die for them and for us. This is Jesus. Can I ask you this morning as we come to the table of the Lord, do you know Him? Do you know Him? You see, one last thing about this verse, though, in verse 18. Don uh, Don Carson points this out, an important caution. He says, The one who prides himself on being his own man or woman or speaking on his own has his ego bound up with his witness. So, at least in part, he seeks to gain honor for him or herself. Thus, if that is the motive, you'll never see the truth. 
You're blind to it. Imagine living your life, telling yourself, I love God, I love the words of God, only to discover you never did, which is what these Pharisees and priests were about to understand. This is what Jesus was telling them. You have given your life to the pursuit of something that you don't even love. And folks, i got to tell you, the more I study the Gospel of John, the more Jeremiah 17 is hitting me in the face. The heart is is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I have said to you, church, many times, the hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. You're going to lie to yourself more than you lie to anybody else. But notice verse 10 of of Jeremiah. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Listen, the safest place uh, for you to be is to let God tell you about yourself. That's the safest place for you to be. Because God will be completely honest and completely trustworthy. He will tell you everything about yourself. And no matter how bad it is, he looks at you and says, and I love you. And I died for you. And I will change you. And I will transform you. And look at what he says this. Do you catch this? Because this is what Jeff read in Colossians. In what I talked about in our call to confession and our call of worship, we lie to ourselves. We say one thing and do another. Why? Because we're always chasing what we truly love. Look at the first next few verses. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Let none of you keep the law. Can you imagine how that was a smack in the face? Has not Moses given you the law? Yet you don't keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? (laughs) Now that's where knowing something about this feast comes into mind. That's why I gave you so much background last week. Can you imagine Jesus asking that question and getting back an answer? How can you imagine? You're looking at a priest, a guy who was given his life, the way it works in Judaism, you went from 0 to 12, and then you had your bar mitzvah. And if you were one of these, you had an aptitude for memorization, you had an aptitude for logic, you had an aptitude for intelligence, the parents would say, I think my son could be in the priesthood. And then you went and you sought out a rabbi and said, look at my son, test him. I think he's got the right stuff. And then you hoped that that rabbi would say, all right, I think he does. And then he basically entered school with him. And from 13 to 18, he studied under that rabbi. And then hopefully at 18, he was ready. And then he would be tested, and they would get other rabbis in the synagogue, and out he would come. And can you imagine someone from 13 years of age, all the way up to whoever these people were in this temple at this time, and Jesus looks at them and says, has not Moses given you the law? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is always going to be, yes, of course Moses gave us the law. What do you think we're all here for? We're here for this feast. We've studied all of our lives. The religious leaders would have cried out, But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 10, you find out a very interesting thing about this. Feast of booths. Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. Notice this. You shall read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and little ones, and the sojourner within their towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. 
Scholars tell us that in, G- in John chapter 7, when Jesus was here at this Feast of Booze, that this was falling on the anniversary of one of these sevens. And so that it's very likely that at this particular feast, in the middle of it, that these very priests and high priests and Pharisees have been reading large portions of the Torah to the people, and then they get into this argument with Jesus, and he says, look, you've got the law, but you don't keep it. You've got it here. You're reading it, and you don't keep it. This very day, you've been hearing the law, which you profess to honor so much, but do you honor it in your lives? And then he follows up the question with a not-so-nice declaration. None of you keeps the law. Again, one of my pastor friends says, this is the most accurate statement the Lord could make as to the truth of human sinfulness. Because no one can keep the law. No one can keep it. And by the way, that word keeps the law means does what it says. It doesn't mean you know it. When he says, but you don't keep the law, he means you might know it, but you don't do what it says. You might hear it, talk about it, claim to love it, study it, and all that, but you don't do it. And this reminds me of an illustration. You might have heard this one from Francis Chan when he talks about his wife telling his daughter to go clean her room. Have you heard that one? Some of you have heard that when she says, you know, honey, go clean your room. And so she disappears for two hours. And then comes back, theoretically, and his wife says, Honey, did you clean your room? And she said, Well, no, but I did have a Bible study about it. You know, I studied the words, clean your room. I analyzed them. I found the word origin of them. I had some friends over. We had coffee and tea, and we talked about the concept of cleaning your room. We came up with a strategy to one day maybe clean your room or how that would go about it. We talked about different ways you could go about cleaning your room. But the fact of the matter is you didn't clean your room. Do you find that sometimes in church we can do that? We can have all the theology right, all the information. We can have all the life groups and study groups. We can have all the Sunday schools. We can have all the coffee times. And we read the Bible and we say we study the Bible and we do all these things and we know it and we can recite it and we can pontificate all about it. But then someone says, but have you done anything in it? And you're like, oh, you meant me to obey it. You see, when... Mrs. Chan asked her daughter to go clean her room. She didn't ask her to go study the concept. She said, go clean your room. But how often do we study the Bible but not obey it? And so this is what Jesus says to this audience. And I love the next thing because then the crowd gets involved. (laughs) I love this. He says, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Now, you got to understand what's happening here. When Jesus says, you're trying to kill me, He's addressing the religious establishment. They were trying to kill him. If you remember all the way back in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, and from that day forward, the Jews plotted to kill him. So he knows that they're trying to kill him. In fact, at the end of this very chapter, chapter 7, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them in verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Because they are already trying to figure out how to kill him. So he's looking at the Jews going, I, I know what you're about. You claim to keep the law, and yet you want to kill me. You're going to violate the fourth commandment all in trying to say you keep the law. You have this Moses law, and yet you're going to break it. But now the crowd who doesn't know all of this, they get involved and go, you're nuts. You're crazy. You must be demon-possessed. Who's seeking to kill you? So now the crowd's turning on Jesus, even in the midst of their curiosity and confusion. Now they're attacking. 
You're not being nice now, Jesus. What's up with that? You're, you're getting paranoid. What's wrong with you? And so Jesus looks at the crowd. Notice what he says in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Now again, you've got to realize your Bible, right? That's back in chapter 5. In John chapter 5, one of the great signs that John chose for us is when Jesus heals the guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years. They marveled at that. They're still talking about it. If you remember, this guy was paralyzed, hopeless, begging, longing to be made whole, and wanting to be a part of a society. And if you read it in John chapter 5, he was a victim of a social religious government gone bad. Because they regulated the beggars and the, and, the, and the paralyzed and these people that were physically disabled, disabled to a colonnade that they built in some superstitious water miracle. And said the angel of the Lord will come along. And so built that colonnade. They trumped up a story. And all it did was make them look good without having to do anything. But Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be healed? And he says, of course. He says, then take up your bed and walk. And they're still talking about it, trying to make sense of Jesus' power and his abilities. He speaks with authority. He comes from nowhere. He works with power. But they can't accept he's from God. And this one work evoked astonishment. But not the astonishment that leads to praise. The astonishment that someone would actually tell another to carry his mat on the Sabbath. They were more astounded, not that a guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years could now walk. They were looking at each other going, can you believe that he told him to work on the Sabbath? And how often do we do that? We ignore the miracle for the fact that something that's happening outside of our comfort zone. Or maybe we don't understand it. And that's why Jesus concludes the way he does. He simply walks them through this thing. He goes, you guys do this. And then he says, didn't you think that Moses gave you circumcision, but actually Moses didn't give you this? That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. And he says, you don't even know your Bible. You think you're all about Moses? And Jesus says, man, the fathers way back in Genesis were the ones who started this. But didn't you just hear the Bible read to you today? I'm here telling you I gave you that law, and you're trying to tell me I'm crazy? And so that's what he says in verse 24. Look at what he says at the very end of verse 24. I love this, the way he ends it. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So to be like Christ, you've got to read the Word of God. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 8, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are pure, if there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. James chapter 1, don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. All of Colossians chapter 3, all of these things should be ringing in your ears. Psalm 1, blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. Kevin DeYoung says it well. It's not enough just to be around the Bible. You need the Bible in you. A.W. Tozer said, whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may appear to be. I am amazed that in this church, now I'm going to get personal. This church, where we have a robust constitution with a lengthy doctrinal statement, where we wear 
badges like reformed, like it's our Awana badge to stick on our vest and walk around and tell everybody we're it. And I'm amazed that when I interact with so many of you, the common lament is, I want to read my Bible, but I don't really do it a lot. And we wonder why we don't know God's will. Or we wonder why we're having problems in our relationships. Or we wonder why our kids are straying. Or we wonder why our marriages aren't as strong as they could be. Or we wonder why we have even a class system potentially in our own church. We've got to read God's Word if you want to be Christ-like. I See, I love Tim Keller. He cuts right through it. He goes, you are worse than you think you are. But you are also far more loved than you ever feel you are. This is the offer that Jesus makes. You want to be like Christ? Obey Him. You want to be like Christ? Give Him glory. You want to be like Christ? Read His Word. You see, we love lovable Jesus. We love big teddy bear Jesus. We love country music Jesus. Come to Jesus. You get your truck back, your dog back, your wife back, your your house back, all these things. But what about truthful Jesus? Who looks at you and tells you, this is the truth about you. But I still love you. You notice how Jesus responds to this crowd? He tells them the truth. Graciously, patiently, honestly, and urgently. He calls sin, sin. That's our, isn't this what this is about, what we're going to celebrate now? You see, sin is not popular today. This moralistic deism is very popular. And this guy named Ernest Becker puts it so well. He says, the plight of the modern therapeutic individual is this, that he or she is a sinner with no word for it. Or worse, who looks for the word for it in a dictionary of psychology and thus only aggravates the problem by his or her separateness. All the analysis in the world doesn't allow the person to find out who he or she is and why he or she has to die. It is when psychology rather than theology pretends to do this that it becomes a fraud and an impasse from which no human can escape. When you won't call it what it is, you actually propagate more mental illness. Because only God has an answer. So what are we going to do? I love this. One of my friends texted me this week and he said, Steve, listen, life is short, so live for eternity. In a world that is passing away, live for the one who passed away but rose again. You don't need better self-esteem, Calvary. You need more Christ-esteem. And the only resolve will be rid of your guilt and shame. So be like Christ. Obey Him. Give Him glory. Read His Word because that will affect you. Remember in Acts chapter 4 when, the, when the P- Peter and John were there and in Acts chapter 4 and it said they took notice and perceived that these were uneducated common men and they were astonished and recognized that they had been with Jesus. As you go to work this week, as you go home this week, as you're with your families this week, your children, your wives, your loved ones, your neighbors, will they take notice that you've been with Jesus? But if you're here this morning on the table of the Lord, let me finish with (laughs) Charles Spurgeon, who's my favorite pastor. He says, if what I am makes me despair, let me consider what God in Christ is, and I will have hope. He is a forgiving God. He does not have to be persuaded to forgive He is a God willing and more than willing, ready, standing, prepared 
to be gracious. Folks, understand, this is not a sermon for you to try harder. This is a sermon for you to believe better. Believe better. Trust in Him. And this table will mean so. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity just to open up Your Word once again and declare it. Lord, I know that You are working in my life, and for that I am so humble and thankful because, Lord, I'm being convicted by You that often what I say is in conflict with what I do. Lord, I pray that I would imitate you. Lord, I am learning that discipleship is not about uh, a head full of information. Lord, it is, as we've learned in Colossians chapter 3 today, it's what we see in John 7. Father, we are called to imitate you by follow your example and then practice it. Practice and practice and practice till it becomes second nature. And so, Lord, as we celebrate the table of the Lord, may we push aside the temptation to just go through the motions once again, but to be engaged in what we're celebrating. So, Lord, we won't be guilty of what we see in the Jews here and the misunderstanding of the crowd. That we would see the promise you offer us. We would embrace the the challenge that you give us because you give us the power to live up to it. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.